0: You got your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them to Genesis chapter 3. As you do that, let me pray real quickly for the preaching of the Word. Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you and we thank you for the gift of your Word. I pray that we would receive it as you would intend, that it would be preached with fidelity and clarity and conviction, that Christ would be honored and magnified, that we would leave here with the greater uh, and more lofty view of you, a greater sense of our need, and a greater desire for holiness. We pray that you would teach us what we don't know, and that you would make us what we are not yet, and that is in the the image of Jesus as you continue to do that. pray that in his name. Amen. Well, have you guys ever had one of those moments where where you just look around and you wonder, how did I get here? About, this is probably six or seven years ago, I was walking through Kids Central one Sunday morning in between services looking for a volunteer. And uh, when somebody flagged me down, I said, Nate, Nate, come here, come here. And that's never a good thing when you're in Kids Central. Um, And so I I walk in and one of the volunteers says, we've had an accident. And I look and and there was a a four-year-old boy who had had an accident. And they said, can you go find another pair of underpants for this boy? And I don't keep spare pairs of underoos in my office, and so I'm kind of trying to figure out where do I go. I'm running all over the church, and um, lo and behold, I find a three-pack of pink girls' underwear. And so I, I walk down the hallway, and, and I give him to the volunteer, and the volunteer kind of like looks at the boy, and the boy is doing one of these, and it's like, um, after, I said, this is your area, and uh, she said, well, hang on just a second. Well, she talks to this boy, finally, I don't know what sort of deal they had to make, um, but this boy went to, in the room and changed, and then she handed me a Ziploc um, with the... Um, the other underwear, and so I'm walking down the hallway carrying a Ziploc of soiled boys underpants and two pair of pink girls underpants, and I had this moment going, huh, how did I get here? Like, every decision in my life had culminated to that moment, and I was thinking, where did I go wrong? Somewhere along the line, I made a really bad decision. Well, as I was reading the text this morning, I wonder sometimes if Adam and Eve ever had that same feeling in a much more somber note where after having been kicked out of the garden uh, or after a marital argument that they would look up at each other and say, how did we get here? Or if after a long day of gardening and barren soil, the Adam would rub his brow and, and you know stretch his back and just say, man, what went wrong? Or when they stood over Abel's grave, their son who was killed by their other son, and through tear-stained faces said, you know what, this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. Something has gone wrong. So for a moment, I want, to, I want you to actually think uh, imaginatively about this story. Because I think sometimes we sterilize the story. I think sometimes we take the humanity out of it. And we engage in the text. And it's nothing more than a myth used to explain the evil in the world. But these are real people. This is a real story. This is our story. And so let's stand to honor the reading of the word this morning. And we're really only going to focus on verses 16 through 19. uh, But I want to go all the way back to verse 8 so that you can see the flow. This was after Adam and Eve had sinned. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to them, where are you? And he said, I heard, you, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You may be seated. Now, many of us have read this story a hundred times, and I could quote it to you forward and backward. But for the first time in my life, I read this story this week, and I found myself really sad. And maybe I've just never dwelt on it for 20 hours uh, before, but the full weight of it seemed to really settle on me. I want you to think about it. Here you have Adam who literally walks in the garden with God. He enjoys perfect, unhindered fellowship. The ground did everything that he needed it to do. His marriage had no barriers to it. Everything was good. And then suddenly it was all gone. And he finds himself before his God, not as a friend, but as an exposed outlaw. Imagine all the shame and regret. We've been there. We've wronged people. We've felt shame. We've never been face-to-face with God in this sort of context before. Now remember, these are real people, probably not all that different from you and I. Can you imagine the regret that they live with, knowing all that they gave up just for a bite of fruit, the constant sorrow moving forward? Adam lives for 930 years. And in that time, he's going to see a lot of death and a lot of violence. He's going to lose his own son to murder. And he has to come to to grips with the fact that all of this has entered through his sin. Now, none of us have ever experienced the goodness of the garden. Our entire experience has been lived outside of it. We don't know anything other than the fallen world, but Adam did. How awful to have known all of that goodness only to lose it. With one bite, it's gone, and the shadows of death begin to creep. We've all seen public figures fall from grace, but never has someone fallen from so high, so far, so fast as Adam did. And the collateral damage has impacted every single one of us, as it's had ripples throughout history. The peace of Eden is now replaced with conflict. And while God gave them the promise that there was coming one who would crush this serpent's head, he also told them that their new lives would be marked by heel strikes. That they would limp along, that they would never fully flourish the way that God intended them to. Now one of the, one of the things that I'm learning uh, as, you, as I preach more often is that sometimes a sermon doesn't go where you think it's going to go. And when I started preparing this, I thought for sure that I would land on the specific punishments for Adam and the specific punishments for Eve and what that says about man and woman. And we'll touch on that a little bit. The more I prayed over this sermon, the more I was fascinated by the character of God revealed even in this punishment. And there are two things that stood out to me. The first is the holiness of God is the basis for his judgment. And the second is the benevolence of God seen and revealed in the judgment. And so let's look at God's basis for punishment. And the reason that I want to start here is because I have heard numerous people claim when they read this story, God overreacted to sin. They claim that God here appears to be a vindictive father and that the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. It was just a bite of fruit. It was just an honest mistake. It didn't warrant warrant the harshness of God and certainly didn't warrant death. Well, there are two problems with that. The first is that when we make those claims, we fail to understand the holiness and nature of God. And as such, we fail to understand sin properly. We are so prone to creating a God in our image. We think he should respond the way that we respond to things. And we would never discipline our children like that. But maybe it's because we're not perfect parents. This isn't new. In Psalm 50, the people are sinning. They're going about in silence, kind of ignoring it. They're prizing themselves on their tolerance, on their kindness, on their acceptance. And here's what God says to them. He says, for you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things I, you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. It is idolatry we round off the edges of God, when we strip him of his excellency so that he is palatable to the masses and comforting to us. We view him sometimes as a grandpa who smirks at sin like we do. But this is not our God. Our God is a holy God. And G.I. Packer says this, Holiness signifies everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him an object of awe and adoration, but also one of dread. It also points to the goodness of God at every point and covers all aspects of his otherly greatness and moral perfection. He's not like us. You cannot read the Bible and see that there's not a chief emphasis placed on this perfection of God upon his holiness, probably more than any other. This is the perfection that three times is uttered by the angels forever as they sing, holy, holy, holy. It is the holiness of God that makes Isaiah fall face down and declare the uncleanliness of his mouth. It's what makes Moses take off his shoes. And God has to hide Peter, James, and John from his holiness at the transfiguration. But we're so prone to denying this reality, and even when we do acknowledge it, it's kind of a squishy holiness because it's a threat both to ourselves and to our culture. Arthur Pink says, The God which the vast majority of professing Christians love is looked upon very much like an indulgent old man who himself has no relish for folly and sin, but leniently winks. At ours, The result in the church is that many have come to view God more as a therapist than a king, and sin not in terms of right and wrong, but in terms of inner hurt and shame. The solution to sin then is not to have it atoned for, but rather to help us learn how to process it better and to make us feel okay with it with ourselves. And so what is established right away in Genesis is that we don't live in a therapeutic world. We live in a moral world where God towers before us in terrifying purity and holiness. He commands, we act. He summons and we come. He is not in our world, we are in His. He doesn't answer to us, we answer to Him. Adam and Eve, along with us, we stand before the Lord of the universe with no excuses, We stand before him to hear his commandment to be holy before the commandment to be happy. We tend to view this incident in the garden not as how it played out before a holy God, but how it impacted us, how it created a little pain and a little inconvenience in our world. And so then our greatest need becomes not reconciliation to a holy God, but rather that we might become reconciled to our true selves. There's no moral wrong in our world, just pain and problems. Now, it wasn't that long ago that holiness and sin were central themes in worship. It's shadow. The shadow of God's holiness was always before us. The shadow of sin always creeping up around us. We hated it. We confessed it. We grieved it. We repented of it. We agonized over it. But after decades of self-actualization strategies and self-esteem nonsense, that shadow has passed in the flickering light of human goodness In that light, people might be willing to admit that they make mistakes, or even occasionally that they might have done something hurtful, but we are slow to admit that we are actually sinners. Mistakes mistakes need fixing. Sinners need saving. And today, we look less for redemption and more for excuses and techniques. It's your parents' fault. Or we go by books, five steps to being happy with yourself. We want to deal with the symptoms of our sin rather than its root. We hate living in a world of pain more than we hate having wronged God. We want God to fix our problems, but we don't want to bow before him. And so he is largely ignored. And it's on the basis of holiness that many have chosen to reject him. Because it doesn't fit into the modern narrative to have an absolute moral standard outside of ourselves. Because then we have to answer for ourselves rather than to ourselves. You see, God is not rejected because of his power, his wisdom, his love, his grace. He's rejected because of his holiness. And Stephen Charnock, the great Puritan theologian, even hundreds of years ago, captured it perfectly when he writes this. He says, They would own him in his power when they stood in need of deliverance, they would own him in his mercy when they were plunged in distress, but they would never own him in his holiness. But to deny him this is to frame him as an unbeautiful monster, a deformed power. Indeed, all sin is against this attribute. All sin aims in general at the being of God, but in particular at the holiness of his being. It wasn't just a bite of fruit. It was an act of rebellion that struck right to the heart of who God is. His holiness demands that he hate sin. And if you read through the Bible, you will see that the strongest language that the Bible has is in regards to sin. Sin is compared to the most nauseating, vile things in the human experience. It's an open grave. It's a snake's poison. It's the vomit of a dog and the filth that a pig wallows in. It includes the monthly impurity of a woman. acts of prostitution and all manner of vulgarities that we would blush to talk about. But we're not embarrassed to have in our lives. We may scoff at sin, but God doesn't. He can't. And our faulty and, frankly, unbiblical view of God has created problems in the Western church because we might rightfully refer to God as a Heavenly Father, maybe even recognizing His supremacy in the heavens. But we neglect that central element of His reign that makes Him otherly, and that is His holiness. Until the middle of the 19th century, most preaching was centered on that divine attribute. Preachers proclaimed the holiness of God as it was revealed in his law, in his wrath, in his anger against sin. And they proclaimed the necessity of new birth and repentance. And it was in that context that the holiness of God was promoted and the holiness of his people went forth as well. And then somewhere in the middle 1800s, a shift occurred with the influence of liberal theology and romanticism that overemphasized the love of God and disregarded his holiness completely. His love became the sole context of the gospel message because His holiness didn't fit the liberation of the Enlightenment and it certainly doesn't fit the narrative of the modern moral revolution today. We become uncomfortable with a picture of God who would destroy entire nations on account of their wickedness. We grew embarrassed of a God who's described as a consuming fire, who would flood the world in judgment or rains down fire on Sodom. I would never worship a God like that, we say. We say, We're told this is a primitive God of the Old Testament, but now he's enlightened and he's evolved with the rest of us. We're told to be on the right side of history rather than the right side of a holy God. But the truth, friends, is that there is no gospel at all without judgment for sin because it frames the entire backdrop of the cross. Even then, many say that the cross is too violent, it's too bloody, it's cosmic child abuse. And so they make it less about sin and substitution and more about sacrificial love and moral victories. We find ourselves lovable, and so it makes sense that Jesus would die for us. But it is precisely our unloveliness that makes the cross so beautiful. It is in the fire of God's holiness that his love is most gloriously displayed towards sinners. Richard Niebuhr, reflecting on the modern state of Christianity, writes this. A God without wrath brought man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. When God's love is disengaged from his holiness, the church is left without any gospel at all. Without holiness, love would be indifferent to sin. Perfect love can't love all things, but only that love, only those things which are lovely. Would perfect love willingly overlook things that are cruel and depraved? Would it really be a perfect love if God were not grieved by wickedness? Do parents really love their children well if they ignore behavior that is destructive and bad? This quote, looking the other way excuse might masquerade as love, but it's accurately nothing more than moral indifference. This kind of moral weakness framed in tolerance is nothing but soft, weak sentimentality with no substance, and it offers absolutely no hope for us. And so you see, God in his holiness must punish sin. But even in the midst of this punishment, I don't want you to miss the goodness and benevolence of God in his judgment. And this sounds weird in our culture. God is holy, but God is love as well. And these two things are not opposed. They are not antithetical. They're not parts of God, for he is divinely simplistic. And there's one whole. He is one glorious whole, and so his love is a holy love. And even in his judgment, we see his kindness. So let me point out just a few beams of light in what is a really dark text. Firstly, as Jim pointed out last week, God sought out Adam and Eve. He could have just snapped his fingers and snuffed them out, but he didn't. He could have zapped them the minute they took a bite of fruit, the way he did Uzzah when he touched the ark. But God came for them. He sought them in the garden. He conversed with them. Secondly, God curses the serpent, but he gives Adam and Eve a promise to hold on to in verse 15. A serpent crusher was coming, and this promise is all about God's love and patience. It was undeserved favor to trespassers. They did not deserve this. Notice also that God does not directly curse Adam and Eve. He curses the serpent, and he curses the soil, but he does not directly curse mankind. But even so, there are still punishments for sin. And before we get to the specifics, I want us to understand the growing nature of sin. It doesn't just affect you. The penalties that are imposed on Adam and Eve will grow and they will affect every human moving forward. And sin is like that. None of us sin in isolation. This nonsense that what goes on behind closed doors between two consenting adults has no impact on anything is not true. It always impacts relationships, firstly with God, secondly with others. It even reverberates down to our children. And so God, as he hands down punishments, he deals with the serpent, which we saw last week, and then he turns his attention to Eve, and he lays down two new realities for her. The first is that she is going to have increased pain in childbearing. Now my wife gave birth to four children, and I had a front row seat for all of them, and I can tell you, if men gave birth, no one would have a sibling. <laughs> because even with modern medicine and hospitals and epidurals, it is unbelievable what women endure. And not just in the labor process. I mean, it's nine months of hard, intensive work, the morning sickness. And then it's like having an alien inside of you. And I remember watching Kirsten roll over and the whole baby's flopping around and feet are popping out. and It's weird stuff. You women, it's an amazing thing to watch, what you endure. But I don't think that the punishment here is just referencing physical pain. I think it implies that there's going to be great difficulty in the whole process. Some of you have shed lots of tears for your inability to conceive. And every year, thousands of women will die in the birthing process. My grandpa's mom died giving birth. Plus, babies are going to die. There's going to be miscarriages and babies will die in the actual labor process as well. There's gonna be pain. And on top of that, children are never gonna be easy to raise. Ask any mom with a teenager or a two-year-old. And I put them together, because sometimes there's not a whole lot of difference between the (laughs) two. And I've spent decades working with teenagers, and I can tell you firsthand there's nothing that causes a mom more worry, pain, and anxiety than her children. All of this is a result of the fall. I think it's one more thing at play here. I think it serves as an object lesson illustrating the pain that God would go through, that he would endure as he brings his own son into the world. Jesus would be born of a woman and he would go on to suffer for, for sin. Well, the second element of Eve's punishment is that her desire is going to be for her husband. Now, this probably means one of two things. Either that she will have a sexual desire for her husband or that her desire will be to rule over him. And I think that the immediate context here is that because she usurped his authority by eating the fruit, she is going to be cursed with this nagging desire to want to dominate him. And he is now going to rule over her. I think the greatest reason for this view is just a few verses later in chapter 4, verse 7, when God comes to Cain, when Cain is, is, is thinking about killing Abel, and God says to him, Sin's desire, Cain, is to master you, it's desire. But you must rule over it. And that word desire is the same word and the phrasing is very, very, very similar. Now this doesn't mean that there were no gender roles before the fall. We see right away that God's punishment is rooted in the fact that he listened to his wife. It doesn't mean that he heard her, it meant that he obeyed her. What it means now is that there's going to be conflict between the two genders in a way where there wasn't before Women are going to want to manipulate and subvert men. And men, because of their physical strength, are going to have a tendency to abuse and dominate women. And you see this playing out today. You see feminism versus the patriarchy and male privilege. Our culture is really not as advanced as we think we are. It's still going on. And marriage is going to be hard. And some of us have seen that firsthand We all know marriages where women rule over men. And we all know of marriages where men dominate and are abusive to women. And this punishment is no excuse for either one of these. In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us how the gospel changes all of this. Men, you are to love your wives after the example of Christ in the way that he loved the church. Good luck with that. It's not a passive, wimpy love. It is an initiating, strong, leading sacrificial love. And women, Paul tells you that the gospel enables you to submit to your husbands as you do to Christ. The way you respond to your husband, according to Paul, is indicative of your view of Jesus. And men, the manner in which you care for your wife says much about your understanding of the gospel as well. And so then he turns to Adam. And he says, Adam, because of this breach in duty, because you have followed your wife you will now spend your days working the ground in thorns and thistles. His gardening will be marked by great toil. It was going to be hard just to eat. Flourishing has now been replaced by mere survival in the world. And this is what Paul addresses in Romans 8 when he says that all of creation is groaning. He means that everything now is opposed to man. We have mosquitoes and we have viruses, as is obvious in the news today. We have natural disasters All of these things now contend against Adam's instructions to subdue the earth. That is not going to be possible anymore. And then God confirms what he had promised to Adam back in chapter 2, 17, when he told Adam, on the day you eat of that tree, you will die. You see, God keeps all of his promises. He's not a bluffing parent who only threatens. He uh, He never breaks his promises. He didn't count to three and then never follow through. And while this doesn't seem like a good thing, we should praise God that he keeps every one of his promises, even when they're hard. Because if he broke even the hard promises, we could never bank on them moving forward. If God hadn't punished Adam for eating the tree, then who's to say that the promise in 315 would be true? What makes you think that the serpent crusher would actually come if you're not going to fulfill the promise you made earlier, God? So he promises to judge Adam And he follows through with that. And so let us praise him that he is faithful to keep every single one of his promises. There's not one promise that he makes that he does not fulfill. Adam and Eve will die. The circle will be complete. Adam came from dust, and to dust he will return. And so lest any of us think too highly of ourselves, let us remember that we are nothing more, as one theologian says, than dirt baked hard. We are frail, and we are dying. And today we are one week closer to death than we were last time we gathered. I need to be careful here because I don't want to minimize the severity of these punishments. This is a dark day for humanity. But as we wrap these things up, I do want to leave on a good note because I think there's a tremendous amount of grace in them, tremendous amount of God's benevolence. You see, Adam and Eve created creating the image of God and he never takes that away. They're still image bearers. We are still given the honor of representing God on earth. And there will be pain in childbearing, but there will still be children. And even in pain, there is a great joy in having a family. And while there be a power struggle in marriage, God doesn't break them up. He doesn't view them as Bonnie and Clyde and separate them. He says, you guys can still go side by side and fulfill all that I wanted you to do. You need each other. And though marriage can be hard, I can honestly say there has been no greater joy in my life In my 20 years with my wife, none. It's been the biggest surprise of my life how much I've enjoyed it. Now weeds are gonna grow up, but Adam is still going to eat. Even though the soil has been cursed, it's still gonna bring forth food and work. Even though we dread it at times, it's still gonna bring a sense of productivity and fruitfulness in our lives. And so they're gonna still be able to fulfill their creational mandate. God's punishment was tempered. It was a kindness. And so, even in the things that were taken from them, namely his presence and eventually their lives, there's grace. For a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. And had he kept them in his presence, he would have consumed them. And so, God removes them, not just as a punishment, but also as a protection. And even in the death sentence, there is kindness. For who would want to live forever in a fallen world? Look, I love life, but there's got to be something better than this. I don't want to work forever. And even at the age of 43, I have aches and pains. I get injured in my sleep. <laughs> I've grieved over the death of a mom. I've seen numerous marriages fail. I've lost a child in a miscarriage. I've presided over funerals of friends. I've watched cancer ravaged loved ones. I've seen the minds of people I've loved fail. And I've counseled numerous people through abuse. The world is broken. It's broken. There's a hard grace, even in death, though because with every wrinkle we're reminded that our time is running out that we are mortal and when we face that truth we look to the heaven for something that can rescue us from it death humbles us and causes us to look for hope but there wouldn't be any hope without that promise in 315 for in that verse God promises Adam and Eve one day things are going to be made right again no more heel strikes No more thorns, no more birth pains, no more banishment from God's presence, and no more death. And the rest of the Bible is about how God is accomplishing that. Now as we wrap this up, I want to point to a text in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, and it says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, that man will die and face judgment. And it's a just sentencing because God's a holy God. But that that verse reminds us that Christ paid that punishment. Because he's a loving God. And fulfilled the promise he made in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis. Friends, this is a sad passage that we looked at this morning. But even in the world's brokenness, I want you to leave from here seeing its beauty. Because we cannot help enjoy it. Sunsets, mountains, beaches, ice cream, coffee, steak, the smell of pine trees and cut grass, the sound of crashing waves, the crack of a bat in the spring, The sensation of sun on skin, the whisper of an I love you, the laugh of a baby, the rev of a motor, a good book, the coolness of the pillow at night, and a kiss on a cheek. How good is our God who allows undeserving sinners the pleasure of still enjoying his good creation, even in the midst of their sentencing. It's the best grounding one could ever have. And Donald uh, Donald Barnhouse tells a story Of Sir Edward Byrne Jones, who was a 19th century English artist who had gone over one day to have tea with his daughter. And when he got there, he noticed that his granddaughter, who apparently had gotten in trouble, was standing in the corner. And he said, I I wanted to, but I didn't uh, involve myself in the punishment. I I let her serve her sentencing. But the next day, I showed up with paint and a paintbrush. And I went to that same corner, and I painted kittens, and I painted fish. And I painted butterflies, all manner of things that might delight a child. And he said, if she must stand in the corner, she may as well have something to look at. And so even in our punishment, I want to point out that God's love is abundantly present. Judgment has been tempered with grace. But they are punishments. And they're there to remind us that something is broken. God gives us graciously reminders that we were created for something better than this, lest we might get too comfortable here. Friends, we need redemption. With every birth pain, we're reminded reminded of that promised son. With every marital spat, our brokenness is set before us, and we're drawn to the groom who loves his bride perfectly. With every thorn we pull from our hand, we see the one who had them placed on his head. With every funeral, we see our frailty, and we seek a solution that is provided in the resurrection of Jesus who is both the one who bore our punishment and the one who defeats death. And one day he's going to return to make all things new again. That's going to be a great day. No more conflict, no more thorns, no more death. He's the better Adam. And it's through him that we one day will be ushered back into the presence of a holy God. Friends, salvation comes through judgments. But Jesus ultimately bears that judgment on the cross. And in that judgment, we come face to face with a holiness that drives us to our knees. But we also see a love that covers us and beckons us to come to him. And so this morning, let us behold our God in all of his glory, all of it, love and holiness, that we might grieve our sin and yet praise the one who can save us from it. Amen? Amen? Let me pray. Heavenly Father. We recognize that we are frail, even in our thinking, that to think of a holy God, we fall infinitely short of what you truly are. Forgive us when we have created a God who is in our image, when we would ask you to be as we are. Let us praise you because you are otherly, because you are holy. Let us praise you precisely because of the fact that you are not like us. Certainly another human, another finite human could not accomplish redemption, but the God-man can. And Jesus Christ came. Let us turn our attention to him and see your holiness and your love in the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.